Now, the title for this message this evening is The Discipline of Being Committed to the Word of God. You can see that on the top of your handouts. If you have your handouts, there are handouts for you. Um, and I'm basically going to answer three questions during this message. Three questions. I'm going to keep it simple for you. It's the summer. We're going to keep things very, very simple. First question is this. What does it mean to be committed to the Word of God? What does that mean? I'm going to kind of define that for you. Second question is this. Why should you be... Hey, Randon. Uh, I won't do that to everybody who walks in. We, we, have that, we have that type of relationship. Here's the second question. First question is, <laughs> first question is, what does it mean to be committed to the Word of God? Second question is, why should you be committed to the Word of God? And then the last question is, how are you to grow in your commitment to uh, God's Word? Um, and before we jump into answering the first question, what does it mean to be committed to God's Word? I want to take a moment to talk about the importance of this message. Um, this discipline that we study uh, right here tonight is really foundational for all of the disciplines. I'll say that again. This discipline that we look at tonight is really, in a sense, foundational for the rest of the series that we go through this summer. We're going to talk about the discipline of being a, a, a good worker, a godly worker, a God-honoring worker uh, in the workforce, wherever you work. We're going to talk about the discipline of the mind. We're going to talk about the discipline of purity, the discipline of time. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of disciplines. Um, but this one, again, is foundational. And the reason I say that is because the Word of God is, in a sense, really foundational to the Christian faith, isn't it? It's foundational to the Christian faith. And many of you know this verse. I'm going to read a verse for you, Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. You don't have to turn there. The author writes this. He says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, now, the opening chapter of Hebrews is just a phenomenal chapter, specifically the first four verses. But in verse 1, you see something very specific. You see something very interesting. And, and the, the author tells us how God has always worked. God has always communicated to his people via words, hasn't he? Via words. In the Old Testament, it was who? The prophets, Moses or Isaiah or Habakkuk, whoever it is. You fill in the blank. In the New Testament... It was who? Jesus Christ. And not only Christ, but his apostles. And if you ever, know, if you ever notice when you read a New, a New Testament letter, a New Testament epistle, when the author opens up, he says, listen, I'm a messenger of who? Of Christ. A messenger of Christ. Old Testament prophets. Uh, New Testament Christ and his apostles. Always, always, it's been the word of God. The word of God is foundational. And because of that, there's a sense in which this discipline that we look at tonight of being committed to the word of God is on a level of its own. Just, I mean, just think about it for a sec. I'm not going to belabor the point, but think of the discipline of time. We'll look at the discipline of time. Believers don't understand the importance of time or how to use time well unless you go where? To the Bible. The discipline of the mind. Uh, you don't know what to think as a Christian. You don't really know how to think unless you go where? To Scripture. Uh, the discipline of prayer. Listen, you guys, you don't know how to pray. You don't know what to pray unless you go to the Word of God, to the Word of God. And so again, it's foundational. Being committed to Scripture is foundational. And so I want to humbly, and I, I mean this, I want to humbly ask for your attention tonight. Uh, do your best not to tune me out. I know we have the beautiful Bridgers uh, to your left, my right. Um, but try to stay focused. Try to stay focused. Um, and guys, I really hope this message is an, an encouragement to you. Hope is really kind of a shot in the arm, something that, you know, we go through the Christian faith and uh, sometimes we seem to get down and out and we just, 
we need a message to encourage us. We need the word of God to encourage us. And I hope that that's what this is for you tonight. Um, and so let's turn to answering the first question. What does it mean to be committed to the word of God? Well, the word committed means to wholeheartedly be devoted to something. It means that you're loyal, uh, that you're zealous, that you're devout in your attachment to something. And when I thought of this, I was just thinking about a relationship. Uh, we have some married couples in the room. Uh, you're committed to that person. You give your all, you give your life to that person, right? To be committed to the word of God uh, means that your life is bound to it. You hear me? It means your life is bound to it. It means that you're obligated to it in all aspects of your life. It means that you're in a sense, you, you, you pledge allegiance to it. You pledge allegiance to it. It means you, you let it permeate your life as a whole. You let it influence every aspect of your life. If I were using the words of the Apostle Paul, I would take you to Colossians chapter 3 where he says, let the word of Christ, what? Dwell in you richly. He says, let it dwell in you richly. But what does this look like specifically? What does it look like specifically? Well, it means that we read and study it, obviously. We read and study it. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he said, accurately handle the word of truth. Of course, this involved Timothy studying the word of God. And to study it, of course, you've got to read it, right? Ezra 7.10, many of you guys know this. Uh, it says this, for Ezra had set in his heart to what? Study the law of the Lord. You got to read it. You got to study it if you're committed to it. What else do you got to do? You got to memorize and you got to meditate on it, right? You got to read and study, but you got to memorize and meditate on the scriptures. Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, it talks about the man or the woman of God who does what? Day and night. Meditate on God's word. He meditates on God's word day and night. Listen to Psalm 119, 48. It says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statues. The committed believer meditates on the word of God. He not only reads, he not only studies, he not only memorizes and meditates, he also prays scripture. We don't just read and study, we also pray scripture. 1 John 5, 14 talks about praying according to what? The will of God. The will of God. We only pray in accordance with God's will when you pray scripture. Do you know that? You only pray in accordance to God's will basically when you pray scripture. And there are so many wonderful examples of this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We pray scripture. We think scripture. We think scripture. The believer who's committed to the word of God is always seeking to think biblically. And guys, this is, really, this is really a huge one for the Christian. It's a prayer of mine that as I go about life, I'm, I'm looking through the infallible lens of the Bible. This means that when we're watching secular movies or, or a secular TV show, which I'm sure you've watched before, obviously one that doesn't go beyond your conscience, right? Uh, when you're watching it and you're enjoying it, you're enjoying it through the lens of Scripture. I try to watch movies through the lens of Scripture that I know aren't biblically based, if you will. Or when you're listening to secular music, I know there's a lot of you who like country uh, music. And we know country music isn't gospel music, although it really tries to be. Um, <laughs> when you're listening to secular music, uh, you, sh you should be listening through the grid of Scripture, affirming that which is true and, in a sense, denouncing that which isn't true. So if you're watching a movie and you see something that's like, ah, well, again, and this is if you're watching a movie that your conscience would allow you to watch, and you see something in there where somebody hits a guy or stabs a guy or chokes a guy, you know, if you like those action movies. Um, you're saying, okay, this is, this is not, I, I'm watching this, but this is not how 
this is not what I would do. I sure hope you wouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> and this is not good. So we think biblically. Paul tells the Colossians to set their minds on what? Things above. Things above. Things in heaven. He tells the Philippians in Philippians 4a, he says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's pure, whatever's just, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, what does he say? Think about these things. Think about these things. Basically, Paul's saying this, think scripture. Think scripture. So we pray it, we think it, we read and study, we meditate and memorize, we also share it. We share scripture. You know, there are a lot of things that I appreciate about the Apostle Paul. Um, he's, in a sense, my mentor in a lot of ways. But uh, I admire his boldness when it came to sharing God's word. There's no doubt in my mind, and I'm sure if you've been reading the Bible for any amount of time, there's no doubt in your mind that Paul loved the word of God. He was committed to it. He pledged his life to it. Why? Because wherever he went, what did he do? First thing Paul did was go into the synagogue and preach. That's all he knew how to do. That's all he knew how to do is preach, right? He said to the church in Corinth in chapter 1, he said, Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we do what? We preach Christ. We preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. If there was one thing I would sum, sum, uh, summarize the life of Paul with, it would be preach Christ. That's all he did. That's all he really knew how to do. That's because he was committed to the word of God. It also means that you obey it, lastly. You obey it. And this is the most important part when it comes to how the believer relates to the word of God. Uh, above, all, above all else, we have to obey it, right? James says, but be doers of the word. Not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. Hear, don't just hear. That's deceiving yourselves. Do it. I love what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. I love this verse. Um, to a woman, Jesus is preaching uh, in the crowds, uh, he's preaching to the multitudes, which he often did on his earthly ministry. And, and the woman said this, she shouted out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you were nursed. <laughs> I just think like, what would you say if you're preaching? And, so, <laughs> and someone said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nurtured you. I would just probably look and just shake my head, all righty, and then get back, <laughs> get, <laughs> get back to the sermon. <laughs> But Jesus didn't just get back to the sermon. He, he, he said something back. He responded and he said, no, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and what? Keep it. Keep it. She gave Jesus a beatitude and he turns around and gives her one back. Of course, Jesus was teaching the importance of being obedient to the word of God, right? He says, blessed is the one who not only hears the word of God, but keeps it. Keeps it. And so the committed believer, above all else, is obedient to the word of God. And so being committed to the Bible means far more than just reading in the morning for 30 minutes. Of course, it includes that, but I don't just mean that alone. Being committed to Scripture is a lifestyle. Again, it's a pledge of allegiance to the word of God. You let it permeate all aspects of your life. You let it richly dwell in you. I want to ask you a question. Are you letting, that, are you letting it do that to you? Are you thinking it? Are you thinking it at work? Are you praying it? Are you meditating on it? This was so challenging uh, for my own heart, for my own life. And so we've answered the question, what does it mean? What does it mean? Let's go to the second question. Why? Why should you be committed to the word of God? And I'm going to make it as simple as possible as I can because it's sufficient. Because it's sufficient. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. 
Uh, we're going to look at verse 14 through 17. It's a familiar passage to many of you. Uh, we're going to do a sort of quick exposition of it. 2 Timothy 3, we're going to start in verse 14 and go down to 17. Paul writes this to Timothy, But as for you, continue what you've learned, and I firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how you, from childhood, have been acquainted with the sacred writings which, you are, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. Uh, we want to thank you that it's sufficient. We want to thank you that it's enough, Lord. Uh, Father, speak to us. Speak to us, O oh Lord, as the, as the song goes, through your word, Lord, that we may be obedient to it above all else and that we may be committed to it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the sufficiency of Scripture is under attack in our day and age. The sufficiency of Scripture is under attack in our day and age. And I want to tell you, Christian, take heed. Whether it's movies, music, the universities. A lot of you guys go to MSU. You're hearing it in, in, in class. I was there. You hear it in class. The word of God is constantly being undermined today, isn't it? It's, it's become this object of humiliating ridicule. It's, it's the laughing stock in our day and age. Just a bunch of fabricated stories, right, by ancient men who were uneducated and poor. That's what most people think about the Bible. But the saddest part about this all, listen to this, the saddest part about this all is kind of crept into the church. It's crept into the church in a sort of subtle way. There are few people in the church who believe that the word of God is truly enough. If you took a survey, uh, all the individuals who were placed themselves under the umbrella of evangelicalism, evangelicalism in the States or probably anywhere else around the world, and if you ask the question, do you believe the word of God is all you need? to be all that God wants you to be, to be the man and the woman that God wants you to be, you'll be surprised how many people would say no. You'll be surprised. You'd be surprised. And the undermining of the sufficiency of Scripture, people don't even have to tell me that they don't believe in it. It comes out in how they live. Things like Christian psychology, Christian psychology. What is that? Entertaining ser sermons, clever evangelistic uh, schemes, all of these things, at the root of those things, is a disbelief in the sufficiency of Scripture. There's no such thing as Christian psychology. We don't mix the Word of God with man-made ideas about the soul. We don't do that. We don't need to have entertaining sermons. All we need to do is open up the Word of God and say, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. We don't need clever evangelistic sermons. We don't need a big board out in the mall at MSU which says, hey, how has Christianity hurt you? That really ticks me off. I sure hope it does. That's, that's so man-centered. And you know why? Because they don't believe that the word of God is enough to do its work. Do you believe that? So undermined. But it's nothing new. It's nothing new under sun. There's nothing new under sun. There's always been men and women, even in the church, who have doubted the sufficiency of God's word, who have doubted that it's enough. In fact, when Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, uh, there were a lot of men, even men in leadership, and there were few people in the church who believed Scripture was enough. Look at what Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, in verse 3. He says, for the time is coming, and the time was there, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. To suit their own. Verse 4. And will turn away from listening to the what? The truth. And wander off into myths. Wander off into myths. This is nothing new under the sun. It was happening when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. An undermining of the sufficiency of Scripture. Disbelief that Scripture was enough. And in light of this, Paul told Timothy to do what? Preach the truth. Preach the truth. He said that to him in uh, verses 1 and verses 2 of chapter 4. But even before Timothy was going to preach the truth in a church that there were, few, uh, there were few people who actually believed that Scripture was enough, he needed to stick to the truth. He needed to form his own convictions. And uh, basically, that's what we have Paul telling him in the verses that we just read. He, he, he tells Timothy to stick to the truth. Believe the truth is enough, because before he was going to preach it, he needed to believe it. Look at what he says to him in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. With the sacred writings. Basically, Paul was saying, listen, Timothy, stick to the truth. Stick to the truth. And the reason Timothy was to stick to the truth is because what he had learned from the beginning, listen to this, ladies and gentlemen, it was enough. It was enough. It was sufficient. In the verses we just read, verses 14 through 17, Paul basically defends the sufficiency of Scripture. If you want to defend the sufficiency of Scripture, take whoever you're teaching it to, to 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 through 17. It's a defense for the sufficiency of Scripture. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the passage I want to bring you to. I want to talk about for a little while in answering the question, why should you be committed to the word of God? Why should you pray scripture? Why should you obey scripture? Why should you share scripture? Why should you read and meditate? Because it's enough. Because it's sufficient. It's sufficient. It's sufficient for what? Well, I'm sure Timothy had that same question. Paul answered. He says, it's sufficient for salvation. Let's read verse 14 and 15 again. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able, catch that, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I love this. This is great. The word that is translated, which are able, in verse 15 is the Greek word dunamai, which means powerful enough to accomplish something. And this is such a great word as it relates to scripture. I'm glad God uh, uh, inspired Paul to use that word dunamai. Paul says the word of God or the sacred writings, which is scripture, he says they're powerful enough to make a person wise unto salvation. This same word dunamai is used in Hebrews 7.25, speaking of God who is able or capable of bringing a person to salvation who draws near. It's also used later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. Uh, You know when Isaac or when Abraham was commanded to go up and kill his son, right? by God, his only son who had waited over two decades for. And you get an interesting insight into why Abraham did such a thing. What would make a man do such a thing? Well, because he loved God, but we also see in Hebrews 11 that he believed God was able to what? Even raise him from the dead. He was dunamai to raise him from the dead. And just as God is capable of raising a person from the dead, just as he is capable of bringing a person to salvation like he did each and every one of us if we believed, the scriptures are also able to make a person wise unto salvation. 
You know, I wish more people understood this. I, I wish we as believers would always affirm this in our lives. It would save us a lot of pain and unnecessary efforts. Ladies and gentlemen, there don't need to be special tactics. There don't need to be clever gimmicks when it comes to sharing our faith. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to do something special. We don't have to try to win an argument when we're on campus talking to the intellectuals. You don't have to give a fluffy message for the sake of appeasing someone's flesh. You don't have to give a fluffy message. You don't have to do any of those things. And why? Because the sacred writings are dunamai. Because they're dunamai. They're powerful enough. They're strong enough to accomplish the task at hand, which is lead a person to salvation. To make a person wise. What does that mean? It means to teach them. It means to give a person wisdom. Scripture gives a person wisdom, which eventually leads to their salvation. Or maybe another way of putting it, the Scriptures literally guides a person to salvation. And what does it teach a person about? What does it make them wise about? Well, of course, it teaches them about who God is. It teaches them about who they really are as a, as a human being. It informs them of their true spiritual condition, uh, uh, condition. It gives them wisdom also concerning the remedy for their sickness, which is faith in Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about this, what Paul is trying to communicate here, I, I like to think of like illustrations. And I just think of a kid who's in here and he's lost. He, don't, he doesn't know where to get. He needs to get outside there. He needs to get to the coffee table. This little kid apparently likes to drink coffee. Um, he needs to get out there to the coffee. And he doesn't know where to go. And then his mom comes along or his dad comes along. She, he or she grabs his hand and walks him to the door, guides him to the door. Now let's take it to what Paul is saying here. The little kid, that's you and me. That's unbelievers, basically, when we are unbelievers. The adult, the person who's going to guide him, that's scripture. The door, that's salvation. that's salvation. Scripture literally guides you to salvation. It literally takes your hand and walks you to the door. It literally walks you to the door. That's what Paul's saying here. In Psalm 19:7, the psalmist writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Or another version says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. In Psalm 19, verse 7, the idea behind that word revives or restores is the act of something turning back to something else. Turning back. The scriptures turns the lost soul to God. It turns the lost soul to God. You know, turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 17. I want to further prove this to you, that scripture is enough to save. Romans chapter 10, we're going to look at verse 14 and 17. Paul, coming off of verse 13, which says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Ask a series of, of questions in verse 14 through 16. So coming off of verse 13, he asked this question, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed what he has heard from us? Let's stop there. Paul's point, basically, is that a person, right, in verse 14, he says, in verse 13, he says, a person needs to call on the Lord to be saved. They need to call on the Lord to be saved. But to call on God to be saved, it first requires belief in that person's heart. So you call upon the name, but to call upon the name, you need to believe in your heart. And before a person believes in their heart, they need to hear a message. But wait, before they hear a message, 
They need a message to be preached. And then he concludes with verse 17, read verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through what? The word of Christ. The word of Christ. The word of Christ must be preached and heard for a person to eventually call upon the name of the Lord. It's basically a process that all begins with the word of God. It all begins with the word of God. It's clear from Scripture. I can take you to many more passages, but time won't allow. Scripture affirms its own sufficiency to bring about salvation. It's powerful enough. It's dunamai to lead a person to spiritual freedom. It led you there. It led you there. And aren't you thankful for that? This is what Paul is saying in Romans 10. And it's what he's saying in 2 Timothy 3. So let's go back there to 2 Timothy 3. Why be committed to Scripture? Why obey it? Why listen to it? Why meditate? Why read? Because it's sufficient. It's enough to save. But the Word of God is, is not only sufficient to save, it's sufficient for something else as well. It's sufficient for sanctification. Sufficient for sanctification. Sanctification, for those of you who don't know, it's the process of becoming more like Jesus. And obviously saying sanctification as opposed to the process of becoming more like Jesus is a lot easier. So I'm going to go with sanctification, okay? Let's read verse 16 and 17. All scripture is, is breathed out by God. That is God-inspired. <clears throat> God-inspired. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And this is really nothing new to most of us here. Most of us know that the word of God does this, that it sanctifies us. Jesus said in John 17, 17, I, I love this verse. I love this verse. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He was praying to the Father, the high priestly prayer, right? And he was praying for his disciples. We know that. And he desired for them to be more like himself. He desired a lot of things. He wanted them to be one. Uh, but another thing, he wanted them to be, look more like himself. And, and how were they going to do that? He asked God to do that via his word, via the truth. That verse changed my life. I, I kid you not. John 17, 17 changed my life, and it can change your life too if you allow it. When I first came to the faith, I had an extremely slow start, contrary to what a lot of believers uh, kind of start off. I was constantly thinking to myself, how am I going to re remove myself from the spiritual idleness? Are you in that state right now, guys? Are you in that state where you're not moving anywhere, you're not going anywhere, you're not growing? You're not growing? How am I going to re remove myself from the spiritual idleness? from just staying stuck, John 17, 17 has the answer. The word of God, the truth, guys, the truth. How does the word of God sanctify us? How does it sanctify us? Well, Paul says first, it teaches us. It teaches us. He says it's profitable for teaching. And the word profitable, something that, a word that you can just substitute to make it as simple as possible, is good for. Paul says the word of God is good for teaching us. And you say, well, duh. Well, duh, the word teaches us. It teaches us everything we know. It's our instructor in the faith. Listen, that's the only reason you come here. That's the only reason you come in the fall and the spring to cross life week in, week out. That's the only reason you come to Grace Bible Church because you're, you're being fed the word of God. You're being taught. You're being taught. Scripture enlightens the believer's eyes to the truth, which sanctifies him. And it's kind of important to distinguish this word teaching that Paul used in verse 16 uh, from the last three words in verse 16, training and righteousness, uh, those words uh, seem to be somewhat similar. Uh, teaching and training and righteousness, right, aren't the same idea. But the idea behind this word is a little different. 
the idea behind this first word, teaching, is doctrine. It's doctrine. Paul's saying the word of God gives us sound doctrine. The word is what forms our theology, if you will. It doesn't only do that, it reproves us. It reproves us, Paul says. It's profitable for reproof. Here's a word picture for reproof. Think about this with me, guys. This is kind of funny. At least I think it's funny. Um, here's what I think about when I hear the word reproof. Think of a mom or a dad. Uh, or rather, let's say this. Think of a little child walking to the kitchen, and he sees that beautiful, beautiful cookie jar or Fig Newton jar or whatever you had in the jar, okay? And they're going, and they reach their hand in, and right when they do that, mom and dad walks in, and they do this. <laughs> I told you not to get in the Fig Newton jar. Who has Fig Newton jar? I don't know why I said Fig Newton <laughs> <laughs> Who told you to get in the Fig Newton jar? You're not supposed to be in there. I told you not to. That's what a rebuke basically is. See, okay, it was funny. That's what a rebuke is. It's a strong expression of, a dis of disapproval. The word of God is good for disapproving our wrong behaviors. In a sense, uh, this was basically our Lord's earthly ministry, wasn't it? He, of course, was walking scripture as God in the flesh and was constantly rebuking not only unbelievers, the religious leaders, but he was also rebuking the disciples. Listen to these strong words. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. You would think at first glance, oh, he's saying that to an unbeliever, right? No. Who did he say that to? Peter, the leader of the apostles, the most ma mature one, if you will. He says, get behind me, Satan. That's a mommy wagging her finger and saying, no, 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 no. Get out of the Fig Newton jar. Talk about a rebuke, though. Talk about a rebuke. The word of God exposes the believer. It reveals the sinful hearts, and it says this, stop. Stop it. Stop what you're doing. So the word of God is good for expressing disapproval, reproof. Paul also says it's profitable for what? What's next? Correction. It corrects us. And the idea behind this word is a restoration. The word of God aligns our life back into where it should be. It puts it back on the track. The, the word of God is constantly performing reformations in the life of the believer. If the reproof is the wagging of the finger and the mom scolding uh, the little child, here's what correction is. It's her telling him or he, him telling the little child to go back to his room, to go to your room. Hey, you, you stuck your hand in a fig newture? Get to the room. Get to the room. And we're going to talk about why that's wrong. It corrects us. It straightens us back out. It, it aligns us back to the truth. Have you ever been straightened out by Scripture? I have. have you, has your life ever been out of whack as you go against the grain of the Spirit within you and you know what you're doing is wrong? And then you come to the Word of God and it straightens you back up? Praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. Again, Jesus' earthly ministry is a wonderful example of this. Jesus was constantly straightening out his disciples saying no here and no there, and turning and directing their attention back to where it should have been, right? Constantly correcting wrong thinking, wrong behavior. And then lastly, Paul says this, it's profitable or it's good for training in righteousness, for training in righteousness. And again, there's a difference between this word, training in righteousness, and the first word, teaching. The idea behind this word has more so to do with the do's and don'ts of Christianity. It has to do less with the indicatives of Scripture more with the imperatives, uh, less with the general truths, more with the commands. 
If we want to know how to behave in an honorable manner in the sight of God, where do you go? Scripture. I love Romans 12 too, which says that the believer is called to renew his mind. Renew your mind. And of course, we're renewing our mind by Scripture, with Scripture. And then it says this, so that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's the word of God that renews our mind and it allows for us to live holy lives. It allows for us to do that which is pleasing in the sight of God. And so what is the word of God? How does it sanctify us? It teaches us. It gives us doctrine. It tells us no, no, no. It wags its finger at us. It rebukes us. It corrects us. It straightens out our life back to where it should be heading. And it trains us in righteousness. It teaches us about the do's and don'ts of Christianity. And then Paul closed in verse 17, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this is, of course, the pastor. This is the pastor for him to be able to do those things. So ladies and gentlemen, why, are you, why, why should you be committed to Scripture? Because it's enough. It's dunamai. It's enough to save you. It's enough to sanctify you. What else is there? What else do people need? other than soul-saving and soul-strengthening. They don't need anything else. They don't need anything else. The Word of God can do that. And then lastly, I want to close with this. How? This answers the last question. How are we to be committed to the Word of God? We know what it, we know what it means to be committed. We know why we should be committed. But here's where the rubber meets the road. How do we grow in our commitment to Scripture? This is the application, if you will, of the message. And there are three things I want to leave you with. One is on the dependent side of things, and two is on the disciplined side of things. Pray for it. Pray for it. We must pray to God to be committed to Scripture. This is so very important. You know, I was thinking about this. I had to ask myself, how often is it a prayer of mine to grow in the commitment to Scripture? How often is it a prayer of mine? How often is it a prayer of yours to grow in your commitment to God's Word? If you want to grow, if you expect to grow, who should you go to? God. Matt did a wonderful job of teaching this uh, uh, last week. We're dependent. Right? That airplane, you need both wings or else it's going down. It's going down fast. We need to pray. We're dependent. Psalm 19 gives so many wonderful examples. Of this. I wish I could turn to which I really do, but I'm not because I'm running out of time. Go to Psalm 119. The author there, Psalm 119 is just phenomenal. It's one of my faves. You guys have one? I know you guys got a lot of faves, but Psalm 119 is one of my faves. 100, listen to this. 171 verses out of 176 verses mentions the Word of God. Oh, that's lovely. That is lovely. 171 verses out of the 176 verses mention Scripture. I love it. I love it. We see the psalmist praying for understanding of God's Word. He prays that he would live a life according to God's Word. He prays that his only desire would be God's Word. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 119, 37, it says, Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life in your word. I love it. I love it. He prays. You see that so much. And then turning to the discipline side of things, we got to pray, but there's two things on the discipline side. We, we need to realize our need for it. Realize your need for it, guys. When you go to 2 Timothy 3, when you go to John 17, when you hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, you realize what the word of God is capable of, and that leads you, and you need to actually think about this. I have to think about this. 2 Timothy 3 says it's, it's enough to save. It's enough to sanctify. This leads you to being committed to it, to obeying it more. So you need to realize it. And lastly, you got to long for it. you got to actually turn with me to 1 Peter 2. I can't, I can't have you not turn to this one. Does that make sense? I can't have you not turn to this one? Yeah, that's right. Um, 1 Peter 2. This is wonderful. 
I love it. Many of you guys are familiar with this passage. Verse 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for it. Matt and Trina, I'm looking back at their laughing because I know little Alan and she loves her milk. Doesn't she love her milk, Trina? She's thinking loves her milk. Callie and Andrew, when, when, the, when your child was young, did it love its milk? Yeah, they loved the milk. And Paul said, like newborn infants, sorry guys, like newborn infants, long for the milk. And I like the way the NASB puts it because it says, like newborn infants, long for the pure milk of the word. It's the word that Peter is mentioning. You know, this is an interesting verse. Not often are we told in scripture to desire things because typically our desires don't align with God's word. But here's one instance where we're told to desire something, to long for it, to yearn for it. We're told to yearn for scripture. So yearn for it. Psalm 119, listen to this, verse 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Can you pray that with an honest heart? Again, in verse 131, he says, I open up my mouth and pant. I open up my mouth and I'm like, I, I, I need something. I need something. And then listen to what he says, because I long for your commandments. Because I long for it. We need to pray. We need to realize our need, and we need to long for it. Guys, I hope this was a refresher to you. Uh, I hope this, as you study Scripture, as you devote your life to Scripture, as you teach it, as you share it on campus, as you adhere to it in all aspects of your life, I hope this was a good message for you and encouragement. It's enough, guys. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It's so rich. It's so good. I'm even laughing because it's so good. It's great, Lord. Thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we, can, that we can have it, that we can open it, that we can read it, obey it, think it, study it. Thank you so much, God. Thank you so very much. We love you, Lord. We love you. And we, and we come to you and we pray now. I pray for myself and I pray for every individual in this room that we would long, that we would desire, that we would yearn for your word. <clears throat> and we would desire. And help us to realize our need for it, to realize the power of it. It's dunamai, Paul says. It's enough to save. It's enough to sanctify. And so would that drive us to it? Would that drive us to long for it? We pray these things because you, not just because we want to be spiritual people, Lord, because you command us to pray and because we're dependent upon you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.